It is God's will that you should be sanctified. There you go. Message is done. I just gave you the answer. That you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know Christ. Or who do not know God. And that in this manner no one... Oops, I just jumped ahead. That each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this manner, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, about your love for one another, we don't need to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet, we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Lord, as we look into your word, would you open our hearts and prepare us for that which you have for us today? In your name I pray, amen. Well, if you received a bulletin and you want to follow along and you like, you're a blank filler-outer kind of person, uh, you flip to the right side of your bulletin and you can find the notes there. If you'd rather just try to keep up with me and I'll try to talk as slowly as I possibly can, uh, that's great too. But we want to talk today about the idea of knowing and then living out the will of God. Uh, You know, a pastor gets asked that question almost daily, if not weekly. What's God's will for my life? And pastors instantly, when that question is asked, become very unpopular. Because most of the time when someone asks a pastor or a a leader in the church, what's God's will for my life? What they're asking for is you to justify them not doing God's will for their lives. Right? What do I mean by that? I mean, we're always looking to change the line of holiness of sinful behavior so that our actions wouldn't be as sinful as we deep down know they are. And so if a pastor, and by the way, pastors are not infallible. Most of you have discovered that in me alone, uh, but we are not perfect. The word of God is living and active and reliable. Pastors might make a mistake here and there. But here's the thing. The will of God is so simply laid out for us, and it's exciting And it's the greatest pursuit we can chase in this life and for all eternity. And you know what the will of God is? To be sanctified. Or if you go down to verse 7, it gets even a little more clear. And then we're going to kind of try to explain these big terms for you just in case they sound a little confusing. God did not call us to be impure. Okay, maybe we don't use impure too often in a church or in general conversation anymore. We don't go around saying, unclean, unclean. Uh, So God did not call us to be dirty in our thought life, in our hearts, even in our physical condition. You know, 
Take, for instance, on, on Friday. My wife and I just celebrated an anniversary, and it was a lovely day, and we decided what would be better on our anniversary than to be outside, our favorite thing to do together. And so we went for a bike ride out at Daimeduk in Taipo. And of course, as soon as we got on the bikes and got over across the dam and were making our way back, the heavens unloaded. And they did so for the rest of our 17-kilometer bike ride. And that was wonderful. But what was the first thing we wanted to do as soon as we got home? Take a shower because we felt gross. We felt disgusting. We wanted to be clean, but we weren't. The, the, the pollutants of this world, literally the pollution of this world was all over us. And we stunk. No, not, not Melissa. She smells like a rose. But me, I stunk and I needed to be clean. Well, in a much deeper way, we are called to clean living. I am not saying you need to become a vegan. I'm saying we need to pursue God's word and see what does he say about the actions, behaviors, and decisions of my life and where are they aimed or whom are they aimed toward. Now, here's the thing. Mike, this sounds an awful lot like moralism or legalism. Like you're telling us there's a whole lot of do this, do this, and do that. You're right. I am saying there's a whole lot of do this, do that, and do this. Because God's word gives us a whole lot of good examples. But the thing is, the examples don't bring us into salvation. The right decisions don't bring us into salvation. We have already, those who've believed on Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, have already been saved. The reason we obey isn't to earn our salvation. The reason we obey is because we love God so much we would want to please him. We would want to bring glory to his name and we would want to show others there's a better way to live. That is at the heart of sanctification. A life that is set apart that's different from what the world has to say. The world says, do whatever you can to succeed, no matter whom you hurt. God's word says, the first shall be last and the last shall be serf. Make me a servant. The world says that we can redefine sexuality, we can redefine relationships to what we feel is appropriate for who we feel we are today. God's word spells out very clearly what marriage is to be about, a loving, God-honoring relationship between a man and a woman. Simple. God has given us and says, you want to please me? You want to live in a way that will not only please me, but then add blessings to your life? Isn't that amazing? God says, as you obey me, I will bless you. It might not be the way we want to be blessed, It might not be the fact that suddenly I have a billion dollars sitting in my bank account that I can give away to others, which sounds really holy. God hasn't seen fit to do that. But the life lived in surrender and sanctification of God, uh, of dependence on God, means that I'm going to seek to please him first. How is it defined, this idea of sanctification? To dedicate to the service of and loyalty to God. In other words, every part of my life is going to be dedicated to and loyal to God first. It is God's will that we should be dedicated, that we should be set apart for him first. But Mike, I've got all these plans. Well, you know what? So did King Hezekiah. And then 
Isaiah came to Hezekiah and said, you're going to die. It's not great news. And when a prophet tells you something, the prophet is usually right. And if he's wrong, he is a false prophet and therefore was subject to death himself. And in this case, Isaiah goes and, and, and talks to Hezekiah. And Hezekiah is told this. And he cries out to the Lord. And you know what? The Lord listens. And the Lord gives him 15 more years. And in the process, as all of this is going on, and Hezekiah is uh, wrestling with these different things, Assyria is getting ready to attack him. And Hezekiah could make all these plans. This is how I am going to defend Israel. This is how I am going to stand firm. And this is what I am going to do. And you know what he does? He's like, oh no, this is horrible. And he lays out the letter the opposing king had sent. And he literally just said, God, help me. He said it all before the Lord and said, you tell me what to do. Unfortunately, Hezekiah didn't do that all the time. And that proved to be his undoing like it is for many of us. But God invites us to sit down at the table, to lay it all before him and say, God, you can carry this. My life is in your hands set apart for you and for your glory. And I'm going to trust you with the results. I'm going to trust you to help me live the way you have called me to live. But you might say, Mike, that's tough today. There is so much opposition to the Lord. And you know what? It's just going to keep getting worse. Uh, I would love to say that this is going to be just a happy message. And there is tremendous grace and tremendous victory and joy in this message as we press on. But the days preparing for Christ's return will grow increasingly dark. People will become more and more anti-Jesus, anti-God. And they will seek to make their own ways toward heaven. And ultimately, they will fail. But in the process, they will attack those that stand for something they don't agree with. A true unwavering sense of right, a truth that is absolute, that does not move and does not bend, a holiness that calls us to live differently and better than the life we find ourselves in, and a relationship with a God that says surrender rather than seek first your own kingdom. He says seek first his kingdom. So how do we address living a sanctified life in a broken world. Well, let, let's take a look and give three examples that Paul uses and says, this is what you're called to in three specific areas. And I think all of us can relate to the quest for holiness in each of these areas. Some days we do them really well. Other days we'd rather not talk about it. First, sanctification through purity. Now, first we think of sexual purity, and that is what uh, the Apostle Paul addresses directly here. And so we're going to hit it face on, head on. We're going to deal with this, and we're going to wrestle it out, and we're going to bring it out into the light and say, Lord, purify our hearts, purify our minds, purify our hands, purify our computer screens and our tablets and our phones. We lay it before you, Lord, purify us. And then he talks about sanctification in our love for one another. Purify our thoughts and how we consider one another inside these walls. Purify our relationships at work and how we love each other there. And that's the last one, sanctification at work. How are we working together for the glory of God? How are we showing people in our workplace when they might be opposed to Jesus, but they see there's something different about us? 
we're set apart. We're not like the world. If we look just like the world, what's the point? God has called us to look different than the world. And so what I want us to do is I want to try to illustrate this. So I need my three volunteers to come on up. You're going to help me. I promise it is not disgusting. Uh, Brian used to be one of my youth workers, so he knows normally this would end in disgust. But today, because you're adults uh, and you're more mature, I'm not going to gross you out, I hope. But I need you to go ahead and put on the blindfolds, okay? Okay, that would work too. But, but what they're going to do is they're going to put on these blindfolds. And once I'm convinced those, on, those are on, I am going to give them an object in their bowl that they are to taste. It is not disgusting, I hope. It, it wasn't to the people I tested it on earlier. It is not any sort of tongue or liver or feet, uh, anything like that. I know many of those sound good to some of you, and that's great. But now, okay, so none of you can see me, right? This isn't a magic trick. But what we're going to do now is I'm going to lay out one of these each. And then once you've bitten it or taken a look, I'm going to hide the bowl from you so you cannot see what you've tasted. Um, And then you're going to jot down, you can take your blindfolds off when I tell you, and you're going to write down what you think you've tasted. You're going to describe it, not in great uh, detail, not like a a writer of a long narrative, uh, but just in a couple words. So I'm going to hand, Brian hands out the bowl. Oh, that's okay. There you go. In that bowl is an object. Go ahead and taste it. Uh, Jeanette hands out. There you go. There's in that bowl is an object. Sydney, you're already ahead of me. Okay. Go ahead, reach into the bowl and taste that. Good? Uh, okay. So, okay, one, uh, Jeanette is done. Great. Excellent. Brian's still thinking or just enjoying it. Uh, Sydney's done. Great. Brian's done now too. Okay, good. Now, what I want you to do, take your blindfolds off. And I want you briefly to write down and describe what you think. Don't show each other, but write down on your handy-dandy little cards, what did you just taste? In whatever detail you find to be accurate as much as possible. Okay, Jeanette is done. Brian is done and Sydney is done. So we're going to start over with Sydney. Could you show us what you wrote? It says, uh, and you might need to tell, a biscuit, yummy and crispy. Good. Okay, great. And, and uh, excellent. And we know he likes them, so good. Uh, Jeanette wrote, ma- wow, a maple-flavored cookie. Excellent. Very good. There might be, okay, Good. Coffee-flavored biscuit, okay. Different side of taste buds because coffee and maple usually aren't similar. So let's do this now. Now, all of them have an idea of what they've just tasted, right? And we can think that that's the right thing, but it might be vastly different in all reality. Or maybe we get awfully close and we find out that it is indeed from Canada and a maple leaf cracker or cookie or biscuit, depending on how. So each of you got a little bit. Brian, I'm sorry. There was no coffee in it. So maybe, maybe, maybe my hands touched it and I have had coffee. But thank you very much. You did a great job.
Mike, what was the point of that illustration? The point of each of them could have been fully convinced that they knew exactly what they were tasting. Let's use Brian because he missed by the most. And I won't offend him. He could have gone full on saying, this is the right thing. It was definitely coffee flavored. Will that make that maple syrup flavored cookie any more coffee flavored? Because he insists on it more? No, it doesn't change the reality that he ate a maple cookie and thought it tasted like coffee. It is still a maple cookie. What has happened in our world today is we've said, whatever I taste, whatever I interpret this to be, that's going to be right, and we have lost our foundation. Our foundation is the truth of God made living and active through the study of his word and the dependence on his Holy Spirit. He has not changed. His maple cookie is still a maple cookie, and it always will be. His ways do not need redefined. We can creatively explain his ways to the world around us, but we do not change the message. So when we talk about purity, we don't suddenly change because the world around us now says things are more acceptable than they used to be. We love them and we let them wrestle with the truth of that and we ask the Holy Spirit to work in their hearts. But the truth is sin is still sin. Holiness is still holiness. Why did I wear a white shirt today? Because while I am a sinful man, in the eyes of God, washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, this is what I look like. And I know I'm really white to begin with, so the shirt just explains that more. But that's the point. We are called to clean holy living. We're not called to redefining the truth to what we want. We're called to opening up his word and living according to his will. And remember what his will is? What is his will? Our sanctification, our lives set apart for him. You with me so far? Good. Then the rest of this is going to be real easy. Or maybe not. The first way we want to look at pleasing God Because ultimately, for a Christian to have victory over temptation, it starts with a desire to please God and to be dedicated to him in all areas, right? If we for a minute say, well, you know what? God's not going to care about this area over here. We've already gotten distracted from the point. We've already lost sight of who he is. Because he cares about every aspect of our lives. He knows how many hairs are on our heads. He knows knew us before we were even formed in our mother's womb. And through Paul and throughout the Bible, this is a huge topic of discussion. We are called to purity in our sexual lives. And I know that's not popular. I know television mocks it. I know that we can go to movies, we can go to TV shows uh, where we continue to push the envelope of what is appropriate. But just because it might be deemed appropriate does not make it right. And Paul says, you want to fight temptation? You want to fight sexual impurity? And we can all learn from this. We've probably all made mistakes at one point or another in our thought life, in our computer habits, in different areas. And he says this. He says, avoid sexual immorality. Run away from it. Be like Joseph. Immorality chases you. Run away. Don't go there. If something you think can lead you down a path comes across your computer screen, delete it. Go, get, close your screen, whatever it takes. 
If there's a relationship that's tempting you to act in ways that are not pleasing to, you, to, to the Lord or honoring of your spouse, run away. Paul said it's, it's, it's that simple. And then he goes on and he says, we ought to control ourselves. We ought to control our bodies. We don't like this one very much because it, it, it puts the onus on us to have discipline. And it's hard to be disciplined in every area of life. And some of you said, Mike, why are you talking about this? This is easy for me. Praise the Lord for you. You live an ordered life and we thank God for you. But others wrestle with self-discipline and self-control in a way that sets apart their lives for the Lord. And Paul says, just control yourselves. Just because the world says you've got to have that, you've got to see that, you've got to do that, doesn't make it any more right. He says, avoid, he says, walk and treat your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust, like the pagans. It's not a generous term there, the sinners. And he says, the Lord will punish all who commit such sins because it's sinful against a brother and a sister and it's sinful in verse seven against, or verse eight, against God himself. So control ourselves. And in so doing, trust that even if we're not the term today, and I'm sorry to be kind of crass, but the term sexually fulfilled, we trust that God has a better way for us than what the world says is the path to enlightenment. We trust that his holiness is more important than our few moments of pleasure. We trust that his ways will satisfy our deepest needs and longings and that he is enough for this we have Jesus, right? I'm not saying this battle is easy. It's a spiritual battle. Purity is a spiritual battle. You face it every day. But in our hearts, set apart Christ as Lord and say, Lord, purify my heart. Please help me. And then Paul goes on and he talks about love. If purity wasn't tough, then love sure is. Because you might not agree with each other. Someone might hurt your feelings. Someone has already hurt your feelings. You get the idea. And Paul, to the church in Thessalonica, he's saying, good job. But he doesn't stop there. He says, says, hey, you already know what you're supposed to do. Jesus already told you. I have reminded you. The law has told you. You should be loving each other. Right? Well, what does that mean? We should make every effort to live at peace one with another while it is still called today, encouraging one another to walk in the ways of the Lord, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And those are just a few of the loves. I could go on and on and on and on because it's so well talked about in the Word. But the point is we are to love each other. And the reason we are to love each other is not because you're so attractive. It is not because you're so wonderful. You are. But it is because out of our love for each other, the world sees there's a better way to live in relationship with each other. A way that is fulfilling, a way that is not backstabbing, a way that is trustworthy and holy and set apart. And it shows them the way of light, of life-giving love. And that's what Jesus has done for us not always the convenient way, but it's the right way. And then he goes on, he says, keep doing it. 
You already are. So keep going. Don't stop. Um, one day, uh, and, and they're still not down here yet, so I'm allowed to use them as illustrations, but one of my children was engaged in a sporting event and started winning in that sporting event. And they got so excited and got really very pleased with themselves that they were winning that they turned around and forgot that the match kept going on. We do the same thing. We start to succeed. We start to be successful. And we think, woohoo, look at me. Look at how well I'm doing at loving other people. I'm so loving. And we've taken our eyes off of Jesus Christ and his sacrificial, servant-hearted love for others because we're so proud of ourselves that we forgot to keep going. And then Paul then says, okay, you might have done well. And loving one another in the church is a sacrificial love. And I want to talk about this briefly because Paul says, do it more. Well, in a church setting, that means loving the work of the people in such a way that we love by our service, by our time, and by our finances. One of the things I'll talk about when I meet with our governing committee, our church leadership, we call, we're, we're changing that name to deacons uh, over the next year or two. And so you'll hear them referred to as deacons. But the deacons we talk about, and I'll tell them all the time, I don't want us to be a church to ask a few people to give more. I want to invite everybody in our church to believe God's word is true, that he will provide for all our needs and that he has called us to tithe and give of that which he has given to us. So I'm not asking for a few to give more. I'm asking for everybody to give some. And I know that God will provide for our church family as he will for you. And then he might invite you to do more. Through your time, you might have the opportunity to love someone that you know needs it and you don't know how that time is going to fit in, but it's the right thing. And suddenly everything falls into place. Or whatever the case may be, these things come together. We are called to be set apart in our purity and we're called to be set apart in our love for each other. And when the world see the, sees this, they'll see there is a better more hopeful way to live. And there is an absolute foundation that gives us hope when the world is crumbling at our feet. Finally, Paul then says, and this can be a tough one, and I want to let you in on a little secret. Whether it's a secular workplace or a Christian workplace, humans are difficult to work with. Did you know that? We always expect that it's always going to be really easy and it's always going to go well, right? And how does that go? Not so much. So Paul, with a heart for our testimony, my mom used to talk to me all the time about my testimony, how I carry myself conveys not just the rose name, but the very name of the Lord Jesus Christ. She was right. How we carry ourselves at work conveys who Christ is and what he means to us. And so what does Paul do? He says, lead a quiet life. How often can we get caught up in controversies that don't really involve us? There are times when we are to step forth and stand up for what is right. Don't misunderstand. This isn't that. This is getting caught up in unnecessary gossip and chatter that leads to nothing but more anger and frustration. 
He says, lead a quiet life. Keep your head down and get the work done. In the NIV, they translate it, mind your own business. Office politics are for other people. Really, they should be for no one. We should seek the glory of God together and let him guide us in how we make decisions and we would probably get a lot further, wouldn't we? But he says, keep your head down. In other words, do your best for him. Don't let the distractions and the dissent swallow you up. And then he says, this one's kind of obvious, work with your hands. So what does that translate 2,000 years on? Work hard. There aren't, well, actually right now there are a ton of laborer jobs in Hong Kong, but most of them go uh, and are outsourced. But most of us uh, in Hong Kong often have to work with our minds. So what might that look like for us? Uh, As you're working with your hands or your minds or any other aspect of work, it means we're saying, Lord, help me to do my best to use the time that I am getting paid for wisely, to honor my employer, my boss, and to honor you by how I'm working. Lord, help me to honor you in how I'm working. And then he says, Paul has the audacity to say, if we do that, what's going to happen? Look at this, verse 12. So that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and that you won't be dependent on anyone. If we work as servants of the Lord set apart, We know that not everyone will understand, but they'll respect that we won't sink to their level. You will all be tempted to do that, both in the Christian and the secular workplace. We will be tempted to take shortcuts, to cheat, to do things the less than integrity-minded way. And Paul says, in our work, if you keep your head down, if you work hard and do the right things, others will respect you. And give glory, Peter says, to our God and Father who is in heaven. But we are called to be different. Just because the world says that we're to work this way, we can work to a higher standard. A standard that glorifies the Lord. That means we don't just do the minimum. We do everything we can to succeed for his glory. There's nothing wrong with being successful at your jobs. There's nothing wrong with being excellent at what you do. We should. We should be continually learning and growing and hopefully improving in our work so that others can see Christ in us, the hope of glory. So how do we apply these? What do we do? These are great ideas. Mike, of course I want to have a pure mind. Of course I want to love better, but it's tough. You don't understand. You're right, I don't. And Mike, it's so hard to go into work every day when people are treating each other so badly, when wrong decisions are made. And I sympathize and I empathize and I hurt with you. Don't misunderstand that I don't care. But what I want to invite you to is I want to invite you to a sanctified life. A life that says, God, this is yours. And I'm going to trust you with this. And I'm going to act and I'm going to do all in my power and depend on your Holy Spirit to help me make decisions that are pleasing to you, therefore honoring my neighbor, honoring my spouse, honoring my friends, and honoring the workforce force in the world around me. And so how might we do that? Well, we consecrate ourselves to the Lord. We say, Lord, here's my life. All of it is yours. I renounce control over it and say, I'm going to trust that you know a better way. That's a big first step, ladies and gentlemen. 
And we will constantly do that one. That's why part of sanctification is the progressive act of becoming more like Jesus Christ. We continue to grow. We continue to develop. It doesn't happen overnight. The decision is an overnight crisis moment of, it's time. I can't keep straddling the line. Today, I am stepping out and saying, I'm all yours, Lord. But then we will continue to grow and develop in what that means. We consecrate ourselves to the Lord. You want to look at what that means? Join us in our Bible reading plan as we read through Deuteronomy. Time and again, they were shown how to consecrate themselves to the Lord as a holy people. Second, commit to pursuing purity. Here's what happens in the fight for purity. We hope that we won't fail. And then when something pops up or we're tempted in some way in any area of life, it's should we or should we not? Should we or should we not? Should I get this far? What uh, Youth pastors across the world are always asked the same question. How far can I go before it's too far? That's pursuing sin and wondering how close can I get to that line. Pursuing purity says, I'm going to try to eliminate anything in my life that might draw me into impure behavior. And I'm going to pursue righteousness and purity instead. What does that mean for Mike? I want to make sure that I'm transparent and honesty with you. There's a lot on TV. I like TV, by the way. I really do. Like, it's relaxing for me, and it shuts my brain off because it's an idiot box. And so there's not much thinking that is required. But there's shows on TV that I have no business watching. And let alone the fact that my brain zones out, TV in general needs to be cut back in my life. So as I was away from the TV and I was at the Moody Pastors Conference, I consecrated to the Lord. I said, I'm cutting way back on my TV time. I'm not saying anybody else has to do that, but for me... And I, I'm not watching a ton of TV to begin with, but it can be less. And that time can be set forth to spend reading and learning or sometimes just sleeping, which actually might be a good idea, I've heard. And so that was one way I felt like, you know what? Satan can tempt me into watching things I have no business watching. So the easiest thing I can do to pursue purity is to click the power button and to turn it off. Now, Wimbledon is coming up. Don't misunderstand me. I will be watching tennis but there's a whole lot of other things that I don't need to be watching. I am pursuing purity, and you can ask me about it. Ask me, so what are you watching lately? And, and I, because I'm up here, I'm going to say once and for all, ask me, and I will give you an honest answer, okay? Because that leads us to the next one. Challenge others to ask you the hard questions. See what I did there? Invite people into your life to ask you, how's your testimony at work? Even if you don't agree, how are you responding to others around you? How's your love for one another? How are you treating your brothers and sisters in Christ even if they're dead wrong? And even when they're dead right and you're dead wrong and you know it but you don't want to admit it. How's your purity? How's your thought life? How's your computer surfing or your internet surf browsing habits? How's your marriage? How are you treating your kids? How are you treating your church's kids? How are you treating others? Do we invite certain people into our lives to ask us these hard questions? It's not always comfortable. I have certain meetings each week where people will ask me these questions. And I don't always want them to, but I need them to. So what do we do? We say, Lord, here's my life. It's all yours. The old song, take my life and let it be consecrated. 
Lord, to thee. May our lives be consecrated to the Lord. May we commit to pursuing purity, not just hoping we don't fail. And may we challenge others to ask us the hard questions, saying, help me live a consecrated life, a sanctified life, because that's what the church is to do. We're to help each other on the journey. You're not to do all this by yourself. That's not what God gave us. He gave us brothers and sisters to love each other and to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And the church itself is to equip you for works of service that then others might see Christ in us and want that. And we are therefore able to make disciples of all nations. Let's pray. Lord, I desperately ask that our lives would be set apart for you. We know the will of you is to please you, is to have our lives set apart for you, for your glory, and that in so doing, others will see you at work in us, and they might just respond differently. So God, please purify our hearts, consecrate our very lives, search search us and renew us, forgive us of those areas where we've refuse to let you in and let you have control and help us to leave those at the altar this morning and say they are yours. And Lord, help us to remember there is victory in forgiveness. There is peace knowing that we have been washed by the blood of the lamb. And there is victory over temptation when we trust in you. In your holy and precious name I pray. Amen.